Hello. Right up front, I should say, this is not a coronavirus episode. Well, it sort of is, in that we're going to be talking about the ideas of contagion and horror. But we're not going to be really talking about the current situation. We're not going to get deep into the weeds on that at all. So if that's making you anxious a little bit and you don't want to hear too much about it, you know, you can skip this one if you want. But again, we're not really talking directly about that. Like everybody, I need to process things, you know, in a way that I can understand them. And, and, and I do that by watching movies and TV and reading books and all that, that kind of are related to what's going on. And I'm not the only one who does that. My neighbor, Brad Mudge, who's an 18th century literature professor at UCD, he does that too. And this gave him an idea for an episode. Quickly, if you're a regular listener, you may remember us talking to Brad a couple of years ago about why the story of Jack the Ripper is so sticky. Anyway, Brad's idea was this. I suggested to you um, by provocative text the other day that we think about the monstrosities of contagion. And I think in that phrase, I was, you know, sort of hoping to nail down Uh, the idea that disease and the fear of disease and the spread of disease take on different monstrous shapes in the cultural imagination. And I thought, oh, Josh, let's get together and talk about shape-shifting monsters in our contemporary cultural moment. So what does that mean exactly? Well, we're talking about horror movies and literature. Now, a lot of horror films and books are a reaction to something happening in contemporary society, if not an outright commentary on it. But for the purposes of this discussion, we wanted to keep it to a relatively narrow focus. So let's get started. And we'll get started with kind of the two ur-texts of modern horror, Dracula and Frankenstein. The, the point of origin uh, for students of horror films and, and certain sci-fi that, that tilts to the catastrophic and the monstrous, uh, the point of origin there is uh, Frankenstein, um, which happens sort of at the tail end of... Uh, what we call the British Romantic period, that period that um, sort of begins with the fall of the Bastille and the French Revolution and these glorious, wonderful dreams of democracy, of individuality, of equality and suffrage. Um, so there's a, there's a widespread dream that the divine right of kings is over and that we can start again and that um, the American experiment will deliver a new golden age for man. And Frankenstein is one of several texts that speaks to the nightmare other side. You dream the fantasy 
um, of the golden age where the lion lies down with the lamb, but there's also a corresponding nightmare. And the nightmare uh, in, in Frankenstein is born of male pride, uh, male solipsism, male narcissism. And the mad scientist creates the monster, but then his monster goes out into the world and wreaks havoc. Um, so with that novel, um, we kind of have a beginning of a tradition of sci-fi horror that today we often see in cinema's attachments to what, what might go wrong in labs or petri dishes. You know, you think about the beginning of um, 28 Days Later, and um, there's a lab, and there's an experiment, um, and there are some very angry monkeys. <laughs> and um, that experiment goes awry, of course, and the virus ensues. Interestingly, with Frankenstein, which you've got, you've got to give credit to Frankenstein as the beginning of um, the scientific horror film where the Petri dish goes awry. But in Frankenstein, um, the disorder is psychological. In particular, the scientific uh, intellectual male has become out of balance, overconfident, um, full of pride. And it's that scientific pride um, ignoring as it does the responsibilities of family and marriage and parenthood um, that creates a monster that um, then um, destroys him. I asked Brad if there was some kind of specific health threat that Frankenstein or Dracula were responding to, say something like the bubonic plague or tuberculosis? It's a great question, and it's not bubonic plague. It's syphilis. So the idea that promiscuity brings with it peril um, is one that informs much of this horror fiction. And this was a very real threat in, let's say, in Mary Shelley's time, Mercury, um, it's really before um, 1818, but Mercury was the sort of standard cure and it, it was, um, you know, it was horrific in its own right and, and it poisoned the diseased body in an attempt to cure it. And people suffered um, egregiously from from the disease and um, they communicated it to other people and uh, brought all sorts of disfigurements and disorders but that's the that's the bedrock disease that um, particularly Frankenstein speaks to the monster Victor Frankenstein creates is undead yes but it's important to note that he's not a zombie really not in the sense that we're familiar with anyway. So how does Frankenstein's monster play into the idea of modern zombie movies? What's the connective tissue there? We have a visual connection, of course, because in the various film versions, we have a kind of staggering and seemingly clumsy 
and sort of piecemeal, ugly, zombie-like creature. So we have Frankenstein at um, the kind of visual um, origin of the zombie, but it's a cautionary tale written to men about male pride um, and the price that that pride could pay um, for its own disorders. So no, we do not have a sort of a legion of um, Frankenstein-like figures that populate, but we do have that, if you will, uh, terrible metaphor, I suppose, but um, sort of in utero in the novel, because the climactic moment in Frankenstein is not the creation of the monster, which um, happens fairly early on, and it's dramatic and wonderful, but the climactic moment of the novel occurs when the monster, who is very rational, convinces Dr. Frankenstein that he's been irresponsible in his creation and his lack of parenting and what he's done, and his it is his moral obligation to create a female monster for the monster to be friends with, to love, and to, to presumably uh, have a family with. And the Dr. Frankenstein, faced with this choice, agrees to it, um, creates a female monster, and then with the original monster looking on, changes his mind and rips the female monster in part. Um, because he's afraid of her reproductive capabilities. He's afraid that the monstrosity will procreate, that will replicate itself across the globe, and that his original error will multiply. So what we see is the beginning of the zombie films in that particular moment, even though um, it does not come to completion, it's imagined, and then other people farther down the both presumably the novelistic and cinematic line will make it real. Of course, Frankenstein isn't the only place where horrors are unleashed upon the world as a result of the ancient and modern world clashing. As you may have already guessed, at the end of the 19th century, another book was published that explores similar themes in a completely different way. If you think about measuring Frankenstein against uh, Dracula, and um, as I mentioned to you earlier, one of my my favorite questions for folks, it's it's akin to the rather insipid, you know, which kind of superhero would you like to be? But you know, in the ongoing war between vampires and zombies. Uh, which way do you lean, guys? Um, are you a, a zombie person? Do you like those Night of the Living Dead uh, remakes and returns? Or um, do you tilt to what I would consider to be the more intellectual branch of the horror film, which is the vampire? In Dracula, the idea of disease and contagion um, and monstrosity are quite clearly linked to empire and the spread of the British Empire out from the island into Eastern Europe and in particular Transylvania. 
and what scholars call the counter-invasion. Oh my gosh, what have we discovered out there as we've been colonizing the world? Um, and the horror results from the fact that maybe what we discover is a sickness that you know, um, returns to us and um, infects our, our home and place. You can see modern shades of that, in a way, in the admittedly not very good 90s movie Outbreak. In that movie, a capuchin monkey is smuggled to the U.S. from the wilds of Africa. The monkey escapes captivity after arriving in the U.S. and infects a small bucolic town with an Ebola-like disease. That monkey is, of course, a carrier of the disease. Dustin Hoffman leads a rescue effort, and the town, and I guess the world, is saved. Also, he saves the town from Morgan Freeman, too, as Freeman's character is about to bomb it into oblivion. As I said, it's not a great movie. There is a, a better, maybe more realistic, certainly more terrifying film that explores this idea. Right. And that we might see that figured at the beginning of um, the 2011 movie Contagion. Um, and also at the end, and it, I guess it takes us to the end of that film to understand what happens at the beginning because the virus has to be traced back. But we see a random event involving a bat and a pig and a chef who is rather sloppy in um, his uh, personal hygiene. And the result, of course, is a devastating virus that kills millions. So let's think about that for a second, because breaking it down to its component parts, I find helpful um, that there's a sense of the risks of travel and return, the sense that you go out into the world and then you come back. And when you come back, you risk contaminating um, exactly what it is you left. And this is a form of nostalgia and, and, and nationalism in a way. Um, but that's the, um, it's, it's, it provides one of those key lessons about nightmares and the horror genres generally, which is they rewrite our contemporary social ills in sort of monstrous ways that we might not at first perceive. In both of these movies, the viruses originate in what are meant to be seen as exotic locales in the jungles of Africa and in Hong Kong, respectively. And in tracing it back to Dracula, Bram Stoker did not set his novel in Africa or Asia. In the late 1800s, there were still mysterious places that were, well, a little closer to home. Home being Britain, of course. In the novel itself, the mysterious... Uh, Eastern Europe and its relationship to superstition and mystery is weighed against the science and the rationality and the common decency and good sense of Britain. And so um, what's really interesting about a first read through Dracula is that the, the drama of Dracula originates when Dracula stages an invasion of England. He makes his way from Transylvania by ship and then lands on British shores and his plan is to um, infect, the, infect the country. 
um, with the virus of vampirism. The way the novel works is that um, the main, one of the main characters, Jonathan uh, Harker, is a lawyer's assistant, and he has to go to Transylvania for, you know, working with Count Dracula um, to help this counter-invasion. In other words, he's there uh, as an instrument for Dracula to purchase properties where he can store coffins and, and stage his invasion, if you will. And so one of the things that Dracula does that's common to the genre is that it positions main characters where they have to understand the nature of the horror before them. And that horror is often irrational and inexplicable. Um, and so there, there must be mysteries and things that, that science can't explain. And so um, Jonathan Harker then becomes a kind of figure for the reader, if you will, the disbelieving reader. And um, he has to be convinced very slowly and sometimes and then quite abruptly and others that this is the nature of the, um, of the disease um, and this is how it spreads and this is what the uh, results will be. I have a confession to make here. I haven't actually read the novel Dracula. I'm more familiar with the old 60s hammer horror films and from the Coppola film from the 90s. And in those films, there's a portrayal of Dracula as kind of a sexual libertine. You've got Dracula's brides, plural, and in the Coppola film, at least, his stalking of Mina Murray is portrayed as a kind of seduction. And he's always tucked away in seclusion. Maybe it's a haunted looking castle or an English manor house where these acts take place in secret. So it seems like this virus of vampirism isn't just about turning other people into bloodsuckers. And that's not a modern reinterpretation of the book either. It's also, you might be surprised to learn, absolutely explicit in the novel. It's not implicit. It's not subtle. The characters discuss the threat of polyamory, that, that vampirism is linked to a breaking down of the family structure. And so what actually happens in the novel is that once Jonathan Harker returns to England and is able um, through a series of coincidences and events to convince a small circle of collaborators that the of of the threat that they face, they become like a band of brothers. Um, but the nature of the threat and the heroism that is required to stop that threat are unabashedly sexual in their uh, natures. Uh, and as you suggest, uh, vampirism is directly linked to a kind of anti-family, anti-sort of uh, heteronormativity, right? Um, and so their perver perversions abound. And and my students always sort of um, are amazed to, to find out that all of the uh, vampires in Dracula except for um, the title character are women. And so the disease moves from Count Dracula through a network of women. And actually what it's infecting is British femininity. And it is not only attacking 
British women, but specifically British motherhood. Um, what it wants to do is um, sort of derail British motherhood and sort of create a cohort of female um, vampires around Dracula. If you think this idea of Victorian values and buttoned-up British society sounds kind of antiquated, well, you're right, but that doesn't mean it's gone. In fact, in 2011, in Contagion, it's the inciting incident. It comes from Gwyneth Paltrow, her really bad Oscar-winning speech for um, Shakespeare in Love, and that actually infected her with a kind of stupidity which has been running rampant ever since. But she gets punished for it in the first 15 minutes of um, Contagion because, and interestingly enough for our own cultural moment, Josh, it's also one that it's an opening 15 minutes that puts lots of the blame not only on Gwyneth Paltrow, but on China. Um, and so she makes a trip to China and cavorts and carouses in a casino there and on the way home stops to see an old boyfriend in Chicago and um, in so doing, cheats on her husband, Matt Damon. And there's, a, you know, the, the, the understanding, of course, is that the promiscuous exchange of sickness is akin to the promiscuous behavior that one serves the other. And so the virus becomes a kind of sexually transmitted disease. And if we were only properly familial and, you know, if we honored our vows, we, we wouldn't get sick. And if it seems like we're leaving the good Dr. Frankenstein out of all of this, don't worry, we're getting back to him. This through line of Victorian values is present there in Mary Shelley's work as well. It carries through from both Frankenstein and Dracula to all of these movies in, in two ways. One, the, the, the threat that these monstrosities pose to the home or the nation is really a threat to the family and to the women of those families or, or to the families of the nation. And so it works through um, stereotypes that we, we need to uh, recognize. Um, but in Frankenstein, for example, Frankenstein's monomaniacal desire to rival God and create um, his monster, that obsession is directly and profoundly anti-family. In other words, he turns his back on his family in order to indulge the scientific and kind of alchemic fantasy that he will be able to rival God. And then when he does, of course, the monster revenges himself by... Um, uh, killing one by one members of Frankenstein's family. So always with horror films, you ask, um, who pays the price for these various transgressions? And the lineage suggests that women first, um, family second, and then the nation third. And in a way, that brings us around to a more recent film featuring the undead. Hordes of them, really. World War Z. Brad Pitt starts escaping New York, uh, if I recall, with the desire to protect his family and the drama of his 
intervention in the zombie apocalypse is heightened throughout the film by the sense that if he fails in his mission or while he's engaged in his mission, his family is being cut loose from the governmental protections that they enjoy. So um, that's a way of dramatizing actually what's at stake in the pandemic. You know, the, um, the visuals in World War Z are really interesting because of the scope of the shots and the extent uh, of the horror and the multitudes. Um, so it tries very consciously to move away from the Victorian idea of the haunted house, because um, you think about Dracula and you mentioned earlier that there's a kind of sexualized inversion of Victorian domesticity, where you take over the house, you turn the nighttime into the daytime, and you offer polyamory um, as a, an enticing alternative to um, um, the heteronormative family. So given that we've seen these social mores fairly recently, is there a film willing to play with these ideas while simultaneously paying homage to them? Would I even be asking this if I didn't have an answer? I'm talking about a film we mentioned earlier, 28 Days Later, if you haven't seen it, the main character Jim is woken up to a new reality of fast-moving zombie-like creatures roaming London, and he has to learn how to survive fast. Which maybe isn't really an original premise, but what sets it apart is that Jim is not the stereotypically strong male. In fact, he's skinny, he's weak with hunger, and he's completely shocked by the situation he finds himself in. That film is powerful in so many ways, the beginning of that film foregrounds his epiphany. He wakes up literally and figuratively to this world where the the apocalypse has already happened, and the 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 images now, um, I guess, almost 20 years later, are still very affecting. You imagine a London land, urban landscape completely without people. The film derives its power from, from some of those images, but yes, he has to be taught um, about what's at stake. So he wakes up um, to a new reality that has to be learned, and then the film teaches us along with him what the stakes are. I think the genius of that film, besides that it's a low-budget masterpiece, which we always applaud, but it's the moment at which the sort of traveling band from London arrives at the sanctuary, which is a kind of a last-ditch effort out from the city to the countryside and into what they hope will be the welcoming arms of an enclave of British soldiers who've created a, a safe place, only to find that the real horror lies within their um, sort of recently activated tribalism, where they, they pose um, you know, every bit as much a threat um, as the infected people outside. And at that point, the film turns into a haunted house movie because the house, um, which is also has a kind of symbolic resonance, is this huge um, country estate. Um, suddenly it becomes dark and labyrinthian and characters wander, um, avoiding 
terrors in this room or that as they try to seek each other out or escape the threat. The horror uh, of the of the sanctuary is not only that there's a kind of rampant violence and militarism that's taken over, but that they are um, short of women and that their utopian or survivalist fantasy, I should say, their survivalist fantasy depends on capturing and using uh, women for procreation. And so the two women that have fled from London dress in strange red costumes and float through the haunted house, and it's quite spectacular. 28 Days Later retains the use of the haunted house that we see from Dracula, um, less so in Frankenstein, but certainly in Dracula. And in World War Z, the haunted house expands out into the world itself. And so the advance, if you will, visually is um, synonymous with an extension of threat. What if it's not just our, our domiciles which are threatened, but what if it, it is indeed the entire planet, right? So we, we, we kind of skip over in, in 28 days, it is the house and it is the country. And uh, by the time we get to World War Z, it's the planet. There's one final upending of tradition that 28 Days Later performs as well. In the original, 28 Days Later, the main character, Jim, challenges um, his strong female companion, who, by the way, is teaching him how to be in the post-apocalyptic world, but he challenges her um, by insisting upon love and kindness, which is a, a really important part of these films because they negotiate horror and invariably offer solutions of sorts. And in this, uh, there's a kind of, in 28 Days Later, there's a climactic moment in which he's performed, Jim has now in desperation at the end of the film, has performed horrific series of violent acts. And she confronts him and is not uh, certain at the moment whether he is infected or not because he's completely covered in blood and she hesitates to kill him and at that moment he then confirms to her that her original independence from any kind of morality has changed and that's the moment at which the film shifts and then you can reconstruct the nuclear family at the end in their you know idyllic resort right before they're saved. Before we finish this discussion, let's step away from these musty old Victorian values for a second and talk about a different kind of history informing horror. I, I don't think we could possibly stop our conversation without mentioning Jordan Peele. If the original premise is is both wonderful and, and really unremarkable, and that is that art forms allow us both to dream 
and and have nightmares about our our cultural moment, then Jordan Peele uses the horror genre to rewrite racial history, or at least to make the genre confront a certain kind of black experience of 20th and 21st century uh, American history. And that's just a remarkable achievement. So where does that fit in our discussion exactly? Well, let's start with the possibility that it's a remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Instead of having this slightly sentimental and soppy um, film, although very brave, uh, you've got to give it credit. Um, instead of you know performing that, it starts out with that same situation um, and then rewrites it completely, of course. And so, you know, we 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 fantasize um, the the perfectly okay interracial marriage at the beginning of the film, and then that turns into um, an absolute horror. The horror speaks specifically to the sexual fantasy. The, the film says over and over again, they want to keep us as sex slaves. <laughs> so slavery re, um, gets rewritten in this very overt, you know, the fear of um, the uh, um, black rapist now becomes a desire to control the sexuality through zombie-like um you know, mind control. It's also a, it's got to be a counter narrative to the historical reality that slavery was inextricable from uh, sexual exploitation. Um, and um, it's not just famous examples of Thomas Jefferson, but that the, the horrors um, that um, uh, slaves endured were sexualized from beginning to end. Um, it's, it's not simply that they were um, sort of beaten in a um, um, as an act of punishment, um, but their families were split up and their women were controlled and um, the crimes were often crimes of, of sexual violence. And so then that gets um, inverted um, after the Reconstruction, and then suddenly um, freed slaves become the source of sexual danger. Like any great horror property, Get Out simultaneously rewrites the horror genre rules while existing squarely within them. And so there are similarities to Frankenstein in the way that the protagonist is seen as this controllable monster, something to be both feared and desired. Your comment offers a way back into discussions of horror films and monstrosity by asking us to think about how monsters function for us. What is it that we need to do in the monster film? Jordan Peele is um, a, a creative example outside um, the category, outside the box, but we use our monsters to embody our worst fears um, and then control them in some way. And so he write, he rewrites, you know, a great example of rewriting um, what 
arguably was a white genre before, um, uh, to remake it about um, the horrors and the monstrosity of um, American slavery and, and um, um, prejudice. So in, in Frankenstein, for example, um, a salient point is that, and this, is, this returns to our discussion of sexual transgression, um, that Frankenstein's transgression is figured as a rape of nature, um, so that he is described in his frenzy as pursuing nature to her hiding place and violating nature by um, attempting to open it up to its secrets, right? So it's, it's not very um, subtle um, that, that science, and this is the um, amazingly a prescient part of that novel. The novel imagines that um, science and human knowledge will always be in this sort of rivalry with um, a natural order and in, in very much in danger of disrupting um, what, what uh, nature sort of has set to rights. And that's a good place to leave our little discussion of horror and the themes of contagion, Victorian values, and all that fun stuff. Thanks to Brad for suggesting this and for being quick enough to record this right before the shit hit the fan. But don't worry, there's still more low orbit on the way. There's no reason to stop putting out our little show yet. As always, if you want to get a hold of us here at Low Orbit HQ, you can find us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and of course email at denverorbit at gmail.com. If you can record things reasonably well on your end, you should reach out because I'm going to run out of show in about six weeks. So thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon.